Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We hope this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Including my series on Ask It. There's no one that's more happier than I that this is over with. You know, so uh, for the past five weeks, uh, we've done a series. If you're new, that we let people uh, ask questions, write in questions, email them. I do my best to... Uh, to answer them, so ask it is about the Bible, uh, our faith and culture, and anything that kind of interrelates to to some of those uh, to some of those issues. And uh, like today, this is not exhaustive thinking on every topic, but just trying to do my best. As you have questions, and and some of the questions this morning are, man, how do we integrate life as we are living with scriptural principles that that we know, and uh, so I I do feel like there's value in these. Now, this particular series, I think I had 37, 38 questions that were submitted this time. I think I've got maybe, got to answer maybe 20 to 23, uh, and if I didn't get to your question, I always save them. Some of the questions that I used this year came from the last time that we did it, and I just thought they were of value, and I so I saved them. So uh, in previous weeks, I mean, all the other series, they are on our YouTube channel and our Facebook page and uh, our iTunes podcast. Like, I, I've talked about uh, prenuptial agreements and same-sex attraction and, you know, uh, you know, just different different kinds of things. The last week, I, or the last week that I spoke, what if I don't believe everything in the Bible? Why don't we see miracles today like in the Bible with so many different religions? How can we be sure that we are the only way our people? that have never heard the gospel destined to hell, what will happen to them in eternity. So it's a varied uh, group of uh, questions. So this will be this will be the last week. Praise God. Praise God. There's a reason I only do this every other, every other year. So, uh, all right. I have multiple questions. Some of them I'm going to answer really quick this morning. Uh, so I'm trying to get to as many as I can. So question number one, is marriage hard? Yes, yes, yes. Well, just hypothetically. That's not a personal answer. That's just hypothetically. So uh, it can be hard, but it's also wonderful as well. You walk through different series, different ups and downs. You go through different trials. But when you make it through that, you look back over life and you go, what? You know, God's blessed God's blessed me. So it's not always perfect. Not every season is always Disney and vacations and all of that. There are tough kind of seasons that you work your way through. But you know what? Uh, it's wonderful. So is it always hard? No, it's not always hard. There are tough times through that. But there's also great blessings and joy through that. And all the married people said, kind of weak, but I'll take what I can get. All right? So that's question number one out of the way. All right. Question two, in your opinion, how long should an engagement last? Who wants to know? Who wants to know? In your opinion, how long should an engagement last? So this question honors uh, <clears throat> biblical marriage of Genesis 2 and marriage 19. Genesis 2, 
Uh, it says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of uh, man. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So this question uh, gives honor to Genesis 2 and Matthew 19 marriage. It's just asking, how do we approach this Correctly, I'm assuming, you know, that it probably came from a young person, a young adult. So engagement, the promise of or an agreement to marry someone. So it's when you guys have, you know, kind of dated, you've narrowed the field, and you're going, you know, you're the, you're the one, let's take the next step. So it's kind of a pre-marriage step uh, of exclusivity that you are kind of preparing yourself uh, for the marriage. And engagement has been around for a long time in various forms. We see it in the time of Jesus, Mary and Joseph were engaged, and then when Jesus found out that Mary was pregnant, he had a moral confliction because they were, you know, they had this public announcement together, and, and the legal threshold back then of engagement was a little higher than it is today, but they were engaged, and that, that created some entanglements because they had already agreed to be, to be married. So it's been, you know, it's been around for a long, you know, long period of time. Many centuries it takes, uh, you know, it's taken different forms. Now, I think we need to go back to the contracted marriage and dowry system. To, personally, I have three daughters. You know, the dowry, you know, when the, when the groom would come to the father's bride and you would work, or the father's husband, and you would work out the financial terms of the marriage, I think we need to go back to that system. Uh, it's just worth a shot. Okay, so things to consider as we approach how long should an engagement be? The appropriate answer would be relative to how long you have dated and the age and maturity of the couple. So I think if you've dated a short amount of time, your engagement needs to be longer and, and vice versa. Becky and I dated for a long period of time and our engagement was kind of short. Uh, we were older as well, so some of that answer may be relative to your situations. I do think the engagement needs to be long enough for the couple to experience the normal relationship cycles, plus uh, plus the unique situation and decisions of upcoming marriage. So an engagement needs to be long enough, you know, where you're still cycling through and learning about each other, your personal quirks, disappointments, anger, disagreements, how you were handling that, conflict resolution, faith in your walk with God. Uh, so there, there's the normal kind of relationship cycle that you go through that are a little bit different because you are now engaged. So I think it needs to be long enough for those cycles to happen. Also, there is the uniqueness of being engaged. You are planning a wedding. You are, are, are meeting their family in a greater way. You are working through future plans, house, jobs, where we'll live, finances, planning the wedding, that whole kind of thing. So there's a lot of, a lot of decisions that have to be made. So I think, you know, it needs to be long enough to accommodate the relationship cycles continue. But you've got a lot of decisions to make, including if one person has a pet, can they bring it into the household of someone that doesn't have a pet? And the answer is no. If they've got a cat, it's over with. It's over with. Just move on. God will provide another person. That's all I'm saying. I'm just kidding. Don't email me. So I... Uh, so it needs to be long enough for those things, but I want to say, too, long engagements can jeopardize your commitment to purity as well. 
So you love each other, you know, you are attracted to each other, you're trying to honor God, you know, as well. So like, you know, God's perfect number is seven. So if you tell me a seven-year engagement, I'm going to go, no. So it's somewhere you need to find a balance of all of that I mentioned before, the relationship cycles, but also you are two young people that love each other and you're attracted to each other and you don't want, a, you know, a length of an engagement to, uh, you know, put you in question when it comes to purity. I want to say, too, I think premarital counseling should be part of every engagement, okay? I don't do weddings unless I have the chance to do the marriage counseling. I'm doing that with a couple now. I think it's really important, you know, not to talk you out of things, but marriage counseling makes you consider all kinds of things before you walk in. It just helps you prepare for the different scenarios that you are going to be presented uh, uh, as you get married, so that it's just wisdom, like our staff. We don't do weddings here unless we do pre-marriage counseling. We're not we're not weddings for hire here. So I think, and and that's up to you. You know how you, that's you know just a, a suggestion, uh, but. I, I think it's important that you do that, especially if you're young. And also, I want to say, I think the marriage counseling needs to be done as soon as possible after the engagement. Some people wait to right before the wedding, and however you want to do that, that's fine. I think there's value in front-loading, you know, your counseling and getting that done because it gives you a lot of things just to think through and consider. And sometimes it's difficult when you've already got the cake paid for and the invitations printed and you see some, maybe some issues, but you already feel the, the pressure. People are already RSVPing and somebody's already given you an air fryer and now you, you know, you feel, you know, you know, a little, little pressure. So I just think it needs to be done as soon as possible into the engagement. So if I said practically to you nine to 11 months, Okay, that's not Bible. That's just me giving you uh, a, a pastor's opinion. It gives you time to cycle and plan. It's not too long if I said 9 to 11 months, and then you can do with that uh, what you would like. Okay, next question. Next question. All right. I have a friend whose boyfriend died, and she said he has come back to shake and move items around the house. She doesn't know. She said he doesn't know that he is dead and he's still wandering around the earth until someone tells him he's dead. Let me just tell you something. He already knows. All right. Is this true? Are they seeing their loved one? Can you please answer this? Give me an answer to this question. So I reframed it this particular way. Do we believe the disembodied spirit of a person can appear to the living? And the answer is no. Okay, we do not believe that in any way. So what does the Bible say about this? Now, they have it partly right because the Bible teaches a soul-spirit entity that lives on even after death. So there's there, part of that answer is right, but the Bible teaches that once the physical death has ended, that that soul departs into the care of God one way or the other, okay? And I'll talk about that. Now, listen to me. You never exalt personal experience above the teachings of Scripture. So when you have your grandmother and your aunt that will tell you all these things, it doesn't matter. We never Listen to me. You never exalt 
personal experience above what the scriptures teach in certain areas. So we know this. 1 Corinthians 5.8 says we are confident in this. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay, so immediately after death, you know, and then, and then Revelation 12, I'll, I'll finish that statement. Revelation 12 says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, what had been recorded in the book. So the Bible teaches immediately, one way or the other, the spirit, the soul entity that lives forever is in the care of God, one, one way or the other, okay? Uh, there's no farewell tour. Let me just say that. You're not roaming around. There's no, we, don't, we don't believe that that's, you know, that that's taught at all. You don't dodge the inevitable. There's no escape door that you are, you are going to, to miss this where you can now you know, uh, put revenge upon your earthly enemies. There's no entity or latitude at that at all. What it says, though, and it's important in this, that we will all stand before God at some point and we will give an account for what we have done on this earth. So the question is part right. There is a soul spirit entity that lives forever. We don't believe you roam the earth when you die. We believe that there's a point and a moment that every person stands before God and they give, they give an answer before God to the life that they have lived. So I ask you this morning, what is your answer? Answer, what is your or what is your speech going to be when you stand before God? What are you going to say when he says, what have you done with the person Jesus? How are you handling the sin debt that you have occurred here on the earth? You've got to think through, you know, how you are going to answer in that moment. And if your answer has anything to do with, I've been moral, I've, been, I've given to charity, I want to tell you up front, that is not the right answer at that moment. So I'm just saying, you know, that spirit, soul, entity lives forever, and we will all stand before God at some point, and we will give an answer to God for how we've lived this life and what we have done with the sacrifice of Jesus. Now the question, you know, do people come back? Do they shake things? And I'm going, no. So what is the explanation for the unexplained and unusual happenings? And I want to say, you know, it is predominantly the imaginations of people, okay? It's their imaginations, especially with people that they love. Now listen to me. Like when I was eight years old, and my mother would turn the lights out in my bedroom at night, that room came alive. I mean, monsters coming out of the ductwork, in the closets. I heard things under my bed. You know, we're just kind of created with that kind of imagination. And, but especially with people that we love, there's this connection, concern. Sometimes we are grieving. We are missing people. So the imagination, you know, combined with the heart and, and mind of people that you care about can, can envision certain things. Also, roaming spirits and ghosts, you know, have, have been promoted by Hollywood in movies and books, and it has framed and formed our thinking and our imagination when it comes to these topics.
So a lot of this is just, it's just culture. Can I tell you, roaming departed spirits and ghosts make a lot of money for people, especially in Hollywood, okay? It's good for the economy in Hollywood for people to believe in departed spirits roaming the earth. It's good for them, but what it's done, it's framed our, our thinking and it's shaped our imagination. The Bible says, no, there is no such thing. There is a spirit entity that lives forever, but when the last breath upon the earth has died, they are ushered into God's presence one way or the other. And they're always leering. You know, they're always evil as well. Because good departed spirits, they don't make money for people. That, you know, if you're comforted, it doesn't make money. It's the evil part of this, the sinister part of this that's promoted. So I'm just saying most of this just comes from the imagination of people. And no, we don't believe in that theologically in any way. And it doesn't matter the story or the personal experience. There is no out escape hatch. God says when it's over here, it's over. And he'll take care of the spirit and soul after that. All right. Next question. <clears throat> Why is it that Christians don't seem to care about the environment? Why is it that Christians don't seem to care about the environment? So when I was in, I was in graduate school, I had a, uh, I was taking a persuasive preaching class. It was a grad school level preaching class. And at the end of the semester, you got an asser- assignment, a sermon topic that you were supposed to preach. This is grad school. You know, this is your, your blowout message to everyone. So the whole class, we're very excited about getting our topics, you know, that we're going to preach. Because part of the assignment was you had to preach it publicly. You had to give an altar call. You had to do the, the whole thing. So, man, you know, people are getting their assignments, you know, the, the cross of Jesus, healing in Jesus, the baptism, the Holy Spirit, Galatia Acts chapter 2. I got mine. The title was, What does the Bible say about environmentalism and ecological stewardship? I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? Who's going to let me preach that on a Sunday? What's my altar call like? Hey, you know you put regular trash into the recycling bin. You heathen! You know you're expanding your carbon footprint. You should be ashamed. What am I supposed to do with that at the end? All right? But it made me kind of look and kind of answer and explore this question because the question's framed, why don't Christians care about the environment? I want to I go back to the very, the very beginning of this in, in Scripture, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God blessed them and said to them, uh, uh, the, the humans be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over 
the fish and the sea and the birds and the ground and over every living thing and creature that moves. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground and everything that has breath of life in it, I'll give every green plant for food. And it was so. So we see very clearly in the scripture that that God's creation came in content and form. He gave light so that all was visible. But we see this as well, that he developed the ecosystem, not just the cosmos, but the ecosystem of the earth and also sustainable national, natural resources. So he said the green leaves there to be food and the fish of the sea there to be food. So all of this was done, and the Lord said it was good, and then he rested. He rested. This was a big thing. If God needs a day to rest, but he set, he created all of this, he set it in order, and then and then he rested. So in his mind, and, and let me say too, I don't necessarily agree with the with the question because I believe people of faith, they enjoy natural resources just like everyone else. You know, for those of you that like to sit at the ocean and you put your feet in the sand, and you kind of look over the horizon, there's a spiritual moment, right? Until you realize your children are being carried out in the undertow, then you'll come, you'll come back quickly. But those of you that like lakes and rivers, and you like to fish and swim, and, you know, but in this intentional creation, you know, there was recreation from the Lord, and peace of mind, but also there would be provision of the sea there, or those of you that like to go to the mountains and you look at the majestic mountains and, 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 and you, you get peace from that. Also, it's a source of fresh water from the snow-capped mountains, or you, you like the valleys and the meadows. You love, you love that. Becky and I took the train you know, from Zurich, Switzerland to Salzburg. Austria. It was unbelievable what we were seeing. We just, we, we were on our honeymoon. We sat on separate sides of the train just so that we could watch. It was so, you know, it was so beautiful, but God created that for farming and planting and harvesting and grazing. Some of you like to hunt and you're out in the, you know, out in the, the woods and you love that moment. Some of you like to play golf and you take a moment and you just look at the, the beauty beauty of the outdoors, well, then you hit one into the woods, and that moment is lost, but, you know, you, you get it intentionally up front, so there's, you know, like, the question, I'm not necessarily sure that I agree, because we all kind of enjoyed, and we have been recharged from, from nature. Implicit in the terms of that passage, subduing and ruling, are also stewardship, care, concern, and responsibility. So he gave us these things, but also we know that there's a certain amount of human stewardship that, that comes as he's given us this particular gift. So, and you won't disagree with that, we, what I'm going to say. We as believers, we should care about pollution of the land, water, and air. We, we should and we do. 
because they always, you know, they have serious consequences for the health of our children and the elderly and the poor. So that just, you know, is implicit in our beliefs. Psalms 19, the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The psalmist also said that the earth is his footstools. Okay, so yes, there are practical qualities that he's given us of beauty, recreation, but also and 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 self-sustaining provision. But the psalmist says too that the earth is God's billboard for everyone sending an unquestioned message to everyone about God's care, God's love, and God's concern. The theologians call it general revelation. General revelation through its beauty, intricate design, and natural resources to provide for creation. God is signaling to the creation a message of a loving and caring creator. So, you know, if we don't want that message, you know, uh, polluted at all. So for you and I, the, the nature is the greatest billboard. Nature is the greatest evangelistic opportunity that, you know, that we have. So the question is, why is it, you know, that, that Christians don't, don't seem to care about the environment? Now, again, I don't necessarily agree with the question because I don't know of believers that just don't care. We enjoy the natural resources. We are mindful of the poor around the world. You know, we all live in the same environment here. So I don't necessarily agree with that. But I, I do think something has, has happened that's made us a little quiet on this. Because many people who advocate for the environment uh, verbally, they are very socially liberal, theologically liberal. They are socialist by government at all. They are atheist as well. And they are the ones that are kind of the most vocal people that are out there. So sometimes in the church we think, hey, if we're, you know, if we are advocating with them, then we agree with them on every other part. So sometimes our voice has probably been a little muted because we don't want to be connected with the atheistic or the socialistic or the very liberal beliefs of those that are advocating verbally uh, for the environment. So the church has probably been a little quiet even though we are the ones that have the full appreciation of, of the environment. And I want to say this too. I want to say this too. There are people out there, because of their theology, because of their atheist theology, I think it shapes something that will be a little different for you and I. People that don't believe in God, they believe this is random creation, okay? They don't, they don't believe in God's hand at all. To them, it would be very easy to believe. If you don't believe in the hand of God and the creative force of God, it would be very easy to believe that one day this world's just going to flame out. Okay, that, there, that there's too many people on the earth, there's not going to be enough food, there's not going to be enough fresh water. So sometimes I think their lack of belie believing in a creator forms this kind of fatalistic thinking when it comes to the earth. We believe that God created and sustained. 
and that he created this ecosystem. He knew that there would be a day that there would be billions and billions of people that lived upon the earth that needed fresh water and they needed food. And we believe that the hand of the Lord in his creative genius provided for all of that. So some, because of their theology, go, hey, this has only got five or ten years and we go, no, we, we want to take good care of it, but we don't believe this thing ends because we believe in God's creative, sustaining hand. So that's just something to think. So I just want to say to believers, because we, we, don't, we are not silent, but we need to find our own pathway and our own voice that we advocate for an, an, you know, a clean environment and, and that we care about creation and things like pollution and sustainable natural resources. They are important to us as well. So somewhere we've got to carve our own voice and our own path so that it can be heard. In questions like this, people would know that it's irrelevant, okay, because we do care. We do care. All right, all right. Next question, next question. With the rise in gender identity struggles and pronoun choice, what are we to do regarding someone's preferred pronouns as Christians? Are we to use a transgender's preferred pronouns and address them by their gender choice? Or are we to address them by the gender that they were created to be? Can you see what I'll be glad when this series is over with? I think it's a great question. I knew that in this series I would get this question in some form. And I think I've wrestled probably more with this question, the appropriate answer to that from a, you know, from a, a biblical worldview than probably any of the other questions that I have. Now, I have spoken about this topic in general multiple times, okay? Uh, I have spoken about my concern for the entire, you know, transgendered, you know, impact that it has on our society. On December the 4th, I did a series called Deconstruction. It is on our YouTube channel. It's on our Facebook page, our iTunes podcast that I kind of dealt with my entire concerns about that that I'm going to just mention briefly. Men and women's sports, men and women's bathrooms, and then this week I saw men modeling women's bathing suits. Good Lord, what's this coming to? All right? I, I, I have concerns about taking young children to drag shows, you know, to drag shows. And I want to say, too, I would have the same concern if it was a heterosexual strip show. They don't need to be in this kind of sexual environment. I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about laws and people that advocate puberty blockers and gender, uh, genital mutilation surgery for minors. I'm concerned about that. I am concerned about the uh, depression and suicide rates for those who are transgendered and then go and have the surgery as well. I'm also concerned that there is a... a, a, a great percentage of people who are detransitioning and their voice is silent. People who have walked into this lifestyle said it's not for me and I've moved back out and that is silent. You don't even hardly hear hear that at all. So I want you to know that I've 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 spoken about this before as well, but I want to I want to answer this question because I think it's important because this question personalizes the situation, okay? And I want to reframe this question just a little bit, and then I want to answer it. So I want to reframe the question, how can I witness to 
or share the gospel with someone who is transgendered. When we're not just trying to make a statement, but we realize that there are people out there in the world and how, what can be my impact as a believer. So to me, it's not just a pronoun issue or a public declaration issue. This is about a person's heart, life, and soul that we care about deeply. Now, Jesus, Jesus in, in John 1, and I, I think this is important as we kind of walk through the answer. It says, Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. All right? And I think as we handle this, we walk through this mindful of grace and truth. Grace is love, forgiveness, acceptance, and patience. Truth in this context is God's unchanging law, sin, consequence, and justice. And as we walk down this path on a personal level, it is important that we remember that grace and truth work together. They are tied together. When grace and truth are separated, then there are issues that are created from that. An emphasis on grace alone will descend a, relation, a relationship where truth and consequences are removed and it's only affirmation and, and uh, you know, affirmation and confirmation. An emphasis where it's only truth. It can dissolve a relationship into a cold, callous, loveless doctrine that does not, you know, that does not consider the present relationship at hand. So, grace and truth, this need, they need to come together as we kind of walk through this. Now, Tim Keller he passed away this week. I wanted to use a quote from him. I disagreed on several tenets of doctrine, but I really liked Tim Keller, and I, I'm sorry for his loss. I had a quote that I'm going to use this morning uh, from him, but I just wanted, uh, probably many of you have seen that. He wrote, Christian tolerance is not about having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you, okay? So I, I, think, that's, I think that's important to remember. So as we walk back into the practical part of this, like what do you do with the name change and the pronouns, there are some things to consider, okay? Because I don't think one size all fits here. It depends on the depth of the relationship with the person, okay? Kind of grace, truth, truth, grace. Is it friend, long-term co-worker, family member, acquaintance that you've known a long time? Is it a friend or family member that you have a long-term relationship with? Okay? All right? All right? So if, if it's a friend or family member that we have a long-term relationship with, then let's, let's walk back through grace and truth, truth and grace. If that's the individual and they said, look, here's my new name, and I want you to call me this, grace and truth says, all right, you know what? <clears throat> I... I have great reservations about your life and your lifestyle and your choices. I don't agree in any way with what you are doing. I feel like there's emotional, you know, uh, difficulties down the road for you. I think it practically, I think spiritually, it doesn't bring you closer to God. It separates you from God. And I just want you to know up front, in every way, I do not agree 
with this, with your decision. But I've known you a long time, and I care about you, and I love you, and I do not want this to break the relationship, so I'm going to call you your new name. But when I do that, you do not think in any way that I have changed my beliefs or my system of beliefs and that I, and I have stopped praying for you, okay? That is grace with truth. The other is truth leading with grace, all right? So here's what I want to say to you. Uh, you've asked me to call you a new name. I, because of my beliefs, values, morals, walk with God, I cannot do that. I cannot do that, okay? But I want you to know that I love you and that I care about you, and I don't want this to end the relationship. If it does, I, do, I don't want that. I don't want that at all. But if it does, I want you to know that I'll, I will always care about you and that I will always pray for you, okay? So that is truth, but it's connected with grace, okay? So I want to say, again, I don't have a one-size-all answer because every situation is different, but I'm saying whatever we do, we do with grace and truth or truth and grace. We are not here to make a speech. We're not here to make some kind of uh, social media post so that we'll get a lot of likes and follows and the evangelical echo chamber will give us all kinds of applause because this is about reaching a person, winning a person, planting seed in someone's life that hopefully will bring them to Christ in the future. Okay? Grace and truth, truth and, truth and grace. I would also say, does this situation occur on the workplace? Okay? It's going to get very sticky. If you work for the government, federal government, state government, county government, if you work for any kind of educational entity, if you work for certain corporations, you know that immediately it's an HR issue. You know that. Okay? You know that. All right, so there may be some of you that go, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And if it costs me a job, it costs me a job, okay? And I want to say to you, I respect you if that's, if that's your choice and your decision. You just got to know. And look, you, you got to know. Some of you already live in that environment now. You're already in that environment, okay? You already know. Probably your full-throated beliefs on this would not be accepted. So some of you may go, I just can't. I just can't do it. And if I lose my job, I lose my job. And I just want to say to you, if you stand for truth and it's rooted in grace and your employment ends, I want you to know God's watching out over you and God will take care of you when you make a stand for truth. Okay? I want to say, too, that if you go, hey, I can't lose my job. I mean, I just can't. But I'm going to, as much as I can, I'm going to be a prayerful witness on this job. If anything, this has made me put my feet in the sand. I'm going to pray harder. I'm going to be a light in the midst of a, you know, dark and diverse workforce here. And, you know, and if that's your stand, if you go grace to truth, then, then I understand that as well. I'm not going to tell you to end your job. You, God would have to speak to you about that. That's, that's up to you. But I want to say this, I want to say this as well. This is happening now, and it's going to happen in greater ways, greater contents, and greater intensity the closer we get to the return of Jesus. I answer this question to give you some kind of framework. Some of you are already there. 
You already feel the tension. You already know that your beliefs and your views and values would not be accepted at all. You already feel this kind of pressure to kind of keep your head down. I understand that, but I'm just saying to everyone, and I, and I said it a couple weeks ago, it's going to be the transgendered gay marriage issue that is going to be the wedge issue that it's going to be on the forefront of the church, okay? And we've got to handle it with truth, but we've also got to handle it with grace. We're not trying just to win, you know, the social media, you know, popularity contest, like, shares, and follows, but in the same time, we're trying to win people as well. And that's going to take some wisdom and some balance as we go back and forth to grace and truth, all right? All right. That's my answer or my non-answer, okay? So, uh, all right, last question. If you, have any, if you have any thoughts about that, I'd love to, f- love to follow up. Any, any concerns or uh, any uh, kind of comments after that, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. Last question. <clears throat> what does God's plan for salvation have to be in the form as we know it today? God becoming man, Jesus having to die on the cross, shedding of blood for the remission of sins, the resurrection from the dead. Why go through all the stress? Why does God not just forgive? Why would Jesus have to die? Really great question. What's the essential component of the cross? What's the, why, why is it essential to you and I today? Why is it important? I want to answer it a couple of ways in, in just a few minutes. So first of all, you know, this question, you know, this, this question doesn't acknowledge the Old Testament system of forgiveness and obedience, that it was not working, okay? It, 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 he's like, why, why, why would God have to forgive? Why did Jesus have to die? Because we can already see the track record of this through the Old Testament. All of the sacrifices, all the lambs, all the rams, all the forgiveness, the day of atonement, all that kind of stuff, this thing was not working, People were being forgiven, but they were not coming into obedience at all. And this whole thing had just kind of been reduced to, uh, you know, to ceremony and ritual. And I want you to look at at Isaiah 1 because he deals with this. The Lord gives a a word here and he deals with uh, his irritation with this, uh, the, the, the ignoring of this system. So look at this. Multitudes is what the Lord said. Multitudes of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, rams, and the fat of the fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Why you come uh, to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense, that was supposed to be a sign of worship, is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Uh, Your new moons and feasts, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Look what the Lord concludes with. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you, and even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. So he mentions this whole kind of 
sacrificial thing. All of the, the rams, all the sacrifices, they were doing everything that they were supposed to do, but it was reduced to ritual and routine and going through the motions. And instead of people becoming more like Christ, they were, they were getting worse and worse in their evil. And he said, I've had enough. Had enough. So the question said, you know, why couldn't God just forgive? And why did Jesus have to die? This was what was happening in the Old Testament here, and it wasn't working. People were becoming more evil. Forgiveness was just ritual and routine, offering up a sacrificial lamb and just standing and going back into their iniquity. So it wasn't working, number one. The second part, as I answer, the cross is this supreme example of God's love for us, okay? The, God, the cross is the supreme example of God's love for us. So, so if you got a traffic ticket for speeding, and I said, I want to pay your ticket. It was going to cost you 90 bucks. That's the going rate. Well, just hypothetically, I know that that's the going rate, okay? Um. And I said, I, I want to pay your ticket. And you, because you were going to have to come up with 90 bucks. And you go, oh, my goodness. I, I, I really appreciate that. That's very kind. I said, you know, I'll, I'll pay that for you. Thank you. And I, I pay. Because when a law is broken, there's always got to be restitution. Okay? God's law, man's law. And then a couple weeks later, you get busted again. And I go, hey, you know what? I I will pay that for you. And you go, oh, my goodness, you did it again. You're so kind. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And then two weeks later, you get busted again. And now you start going, hey, is there any way you can cover that for me? I mean, I really appreciate, you know, what you've done. All right? It's not affecting the behavior. And then in another three weeks, now you're at 110 miles an hour, you get the ticket, you wad up, you drive by my house, and you just throw it in the front yard. All right? Because there was nothing personal to you, the cost was being borne by something else, and it wasn't working itself into obedience to you. There was no repentance, there was no remorse, you're just letting, you know, just, just letting you know, uh, that, that payment be made, all right? And that's what, that's what was, was happening. There was, there was no remorse. There was no repentance. People were not, you know, they were just kind of getting more bold in their evil. And God saw this, and he sent his son into this broken system. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died. It would have been very easy at the end of the Old Testament era for the Lord to come up with some kind of creative way. He already said he wasn't going to, you know, destroy the world by flood, but he has many other options at his disposal to say they're just more evil, more violent, more wicked. But instead of standing by, he sent his only son into the world. God loved for, he just demonstrated his love for 
for us that while we were sinners, before we ever had a thought of repentance and remorse in our life, he sent his son into the world to die for us and to take the penalty for our sin. You know, God just can't forgive. Somebody's paying the price here. Somebody's, somebody's paying the price. So that forgiveness meant Jesus bearing the cross and absorbing the debt of sin. We shifted that on him. The cross is God's sign to you and I that I love you and that I care about you. And I sent the thing that meant the most to me in the world into this chaotic, broken world so that you know that I care. And I have come not just to make a speech, but I've come to rescue you as well. We had to have Jesus. Brent, worship team, you come. And then through the death of Jesus... We not only experience forgiveness, but a transformation of the heart as well, okay? So now we're not just walking through just trying externally to be better people, okay? Because <laughs> you can't do it. You can't do it. This becoming godly and righteous is not about self-will. If we could have done it, we didn't need Jesus. But the Old Testament showed we couldn't do it. We were getting worse and worse and worse, so there was a component of, of the cross of Jesus that said, now it's not just external. Now I'm going to do something in your heart. I'm going to transform you. There's something that I'm going to do on the inside of you that you will be different as well. I love this passage. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It's not just external. It's not just about human will. I'm going to give it my best effort. He said, when you accept the work and the person of Jesus, there's going to be something in your heart that's going to be different. We were at our deacons meeting Monday night. And for whatever reason, it was just unprompted. We just started going around the table talking about that moment of change. Just that moment when we knew and almost every one of those, and everybody's salvation spirits is a little different, but almost every one of those just talked about the moment that they knew that they had changed, that God had changed them. I want to tell you something. You're going, there. I've tried so many times, I can't change. I can't. I just am who I am. I'm telling you, through the cross of Jesus, there is something that he does on the inside of the person. He doesn't just forgive you and wipe away your sin, but there is something on the, in heart, in the inside of your heart. There's a regeneration that happens, a renewal of the heart, soul, and mind that comes through the death and the person of Jesus. You don't have to just do it on your own. So are you ritual Routine, going through the motions. Man, are you just kind of, you know, you know, wandering your way through this, through this life, and just trying? Hopefully, I'll be right with God. I'm going to try to make some good choices down here. I want to tell you, you're missing it. You are missing it. You, I, I've tried. I've done too much. I've gone too far. You don't know everything that I've done. I've heard it all. But his promise is that if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, and you take advantage of the cross, he said, I will do something on the inside of you, and people will know that I've touched your life. 
And I'm just telling you, he will do that. And there is a church full of people this morning that will give testimony that the person they are today is completely different from the person that they were before. If that's you, would you say amen this morning? Would you give praise to God this morning if you're different? Thomas Carlyle, he was challenged mid-1800s. I want you to write a book on the French Revolution. His publisher. Okay, got it. He starts writing. He starts writing. Before the era of computers, okay, 1850, he begins to write the story of the French Revolution with his hand. 800 pages. 800 pages by hand. Okay? He takes the pages, the book, he walks it a mile or so to the publisher, John Stuart Mill. Here is my book. John Stuart Mill is not home. He hands it to the maid. Would you tell him, here's the book he asked me to write on the French Revolution. 800 handwritten pages. Hands it to her. Goes home. This is going to be a life-changing moment. He has no money. He's going to be a published author. He'll make a few dollars. A life-changing moment. For whatever reason, in the maid, when she was moving things around the house, she threw it in the fire. Burned it all up. They go down and have a talk with Thomas Carlyle. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Listen. It's an accident. We're so sorry. Can you just write this over again? <laughs> He's, are you kidding? Like, why? how can I start this over? There's no way I can start this over. There, there's no way. There's no way I can start this over. And all they handed him was just a few charred pages of what he had written before. He's like, I'm done. I'm done. I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. It's too much. It's too far. It's too hard. There's no way that I can do this again. There's no source notes. Let me just remind you. There's no hard drive. There's no external. There's no cloud. Okay? It's over. It's done. It's done. He's lost it. Okay? And not only is the work lost, but this moment that was going to be a pivotal moment, now he's going to be a published author. He's going to make some money. That moment's gone too. And he descended in a time of just depression and discouragement. And because you don't write 800 pages overnight. This took months and months and months. You know? But he kept looking at some of the charred pages. And he said, you know, I can't just live my life in defeat. I, I, I got to give this shot again. So he decided, I'm going to give this another opportunity and he sat down, and he found the internal strength somewhere, and he started writing that again. He took it back to the publisher, did not give it to the maid this time. And now, listen, it's still in publication. He made a lot of money over the course of time. And I just want to say to some of you, 
you feel the same way. I've tried so many times. It's too much work. It's too hard that I can't, I can't make it. I've tried this turn before. All you've got is, you know, just, you know, you, you've tried this before. But I want to just tell you this morning, Christ died for a reason. He died for a reason so that you can be in relationship with him, that you can know him, that you don't have to walk this path alone by yourself. He put his son into this broken world because he loves you and he cares about you and he doesn't want you walking alone. He wants you to walk hand in hand, but he also wants to do something in your heart as well. Well, I've tried it and I've failed. This is not about your human will or your human effort. This is about the grace of God that works in the heart and the lives of every individual. If you'll give him that opportunity. If you'll give him that opportunity. Would you stand? Worship team, would you just lead that course? I will make room. Thank you, Lord. 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 I will make Thank you, Lord. 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 I will make Come on, sing that again. Sing it. Come on, sing that part again. I'll make room. I'll make room. I will make room. Every head bowed in this place. If you're here this morning, if you're here this morning, Man, you're away from God. You don't know the Lord. Maybe you've failed so many times. You know, it doesn't matter this morning. And you'll just say, Pastor, would you pray for me today? I need to get my life and my heart right with God. Just right where you're at, up and down. Would you just raise your hand? Say, Pastor, would you pray for me this morning? Would you pray? I just need to make things right with you this morning. Thank you. Hey, I want to tell you, you don't have to... Walk out the same. There's a change that can come to your life through the grace of God. Doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect from the beginning. Just means there's a beginning, a new creation that he wants to do in your heart. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray this morning. Lord, for those that feel like they've gone too far, they feel like they've failed, their life is broken, Lord, and they live in the midst of brokenness, and they feel hopeless. They feel hopeless, Lord. They don't see another path or another plan, Lord. This is for for them this morning, Lord, that you've come to restore and give hope. And, Lord, you've come to walk with them and change their heart. I just thank you, Lord. Do that work in their heart. Do that work in their heart this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And I want to tell you, I felt those words. We've lost hope. If we don't know what the next plan is, the next pathway, he can restore. He can rebuild. He can do something new. Beauty for ashes. He got the charred pages of the past. He said, I can take those and do something 
with those that you're going to see his beauty again. We're going to sing that again. Hey, if that's you, man, these altars are open. People are going to come that have made this step before. People are going to come. They're going to pray with you this morning. We're going to believe God's going to do something powerful in your life this morning. That can be you. Come on, sing that again. Sing that again. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If that's you, would you come this morning? Would you come? Let the Lord start something new and fresh in your life. If you're hopeless, if you're broken this morning, there's power through the cross of Jesus. Power through the cross of Jesus. Change through the grace of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's you. Would you come this morning? Would you come this morning? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Would you come this morning? Some will come and pray with you today. They'll come and pray with you this morning. Thank you, Lord. in your life that you feel like you've gone too far your sins are too great I just want you to say Lord forgive me forgive me come into my heart today forgive me of my sins Lord help me to live for you change my life 
change my heart. Make me a new person. Lord, I'm done with my, my old life. Lord, I need you in my life. I need you in my life, Lord. It's that kind of simple prayer that will start the grace of God at work in your life. Say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Lord, do something new in my heart this morning. Do something new in my heart this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. If you've been a recipient of that grace across this building, would you lift your hands and just give him praise this morning? Would you just thank him for that moment that you've had in your life? Lord, we praise you this morning. Lord, in our worst brokenness, Lord, you came. You didn't, you cared enough about us to come into this mess. And Lord, in our personal lives, you care enough about us to come into this mess. And Lord, we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you if you've forgiven us and you've restored us, Lord. We give you thanks. Do that one more time. I will make room. Come on, let's sing that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.